Explore New York, your station for news as it happens. I'll be back with another full 15 minutes of all the news at 11 o'clock. And here's Gene Shepard. Straws in the wind department here. If you think the world is getting to be a plastic, gimmicky world, we'd like to point out it ain't only, uh, you know, the U.S. of A. We have a note here from London that the National Union of Funeral Service Operatives, which is another way of saying undertakers, has declared itself opposed to the use of cardboard caskets, which it says has been uh, growing in uh, London, and they're opposed to it. They say they're a little leery about plastic, but they're certainly against cardboard. So you can see man's time on Earth is becoming more and more transitory as we go, right? I mean, what a far cry that is from the, from the pharaohs. I mean, let's face it. It's a big difference. I've not yet ever heard of them building a cardboard pyramid. But they... <laughs> well, you know, modern man, he realizes his time is very limited. So what the hell, you know? Eventually, uh, imagine eventually they'll, they'll, they'll come out with a plastic sealed bag, you know, apply a film bag or something like, who knows, you know, where the next big movement's going to come. Uh, you know, I'll I tell you, it, uh, you just, uh, you know, you pick it up as you go and you, you, you know, you pass along. I'd like to also uh, report that there are sneaky things afoot uh, from Cleveland. If uh, You know, I, I don't want this to be juxtaposed with the previous note about the... Uh, cardboard caskets, if it does juxtapose itself, it's only because it mirrors, you know, just mirrors uh, uh, one of those little coincidences. Uh, in Cleveland, did you hear what happened in Cleveland the other day? Thousands of slithering worms 
briefly delayed takeoffs recently on the main runway at Cleveland's Hopkins International Airport when the worms covered a portion of the 9,000-foot-long runway. Rain waterlogged the area on either side of the runway to grass, you know, forcing the worms to seek dry, high ground. And so they uh, crawled on 3,000 feet of the concrete runway. On the Well, now wait, that's, not, that's just not the end of the story. They were spotted when a DC-10 started skid sideways down the uh, runway after touchdown. <laughs> well, listen, that's not so funny. I mean, well, it is funny when you stop thinking of it, you know, the worms down there. You see, the best laid plans... I mean, you can have $12 million worth of electronics in a DC-10, but it will not pick up a worm. And the, the worm can cause you to go, you know what, over tea kettle. And this has happened. In fact, uh, I had an exciting... You want to hear a little exciting uh, aviation stuff? You want to hear a little exciting moments in, in aviation? Well, Shepard is approaching a runway here a couple of months ago. Everything under control. Shepard has, as they say in, in uh, flying parlance, he has it made. He has uh, gone, uh, his downwind has proceeded uh, to uh, absolute perfection. He approaches his, uh, his uh, he, he's now on his base leg. Everything's cool. Uh, airspeed is proper. He's got the, uh, let's see, at that time, I believe I had uh, 20%, uh, 20 degrees of flaps on the plane, in case you want to know about these things. I go into my final. Shepard is going down perfect. He's got it out. He's going to lay it right down on the numbers. See, he's got it right down there, and he's just coming in there real cool. And everything's nice. He's about maybe 40, 50 feet over the terrain, and the runway is coming up nicely. Beautiful, sunny day. And the uh, place where I'm landing is a place in Pompano Beach, Florida. You've heard of Pompano, Florida, right? Everything's fine. He's got a beautiful 5,000-foot runway there. You know, no problem. Shepard's got it made, and you can see the sparkling Atlantic Ocean in the distance and the beautiful soft breezes blowing in the tropical, rustling palm trees below. Everything's cool. And he's coming down right on the right on the center line. You know, the center line, they lay right down the middle of the runway there. He's coming right down the center line. And as he gets closer and closer, and he's approaching that, he's now about 10 feet off the ground. And he's beginning to ease it back. I'm going in for a beautiful full-stall squeaker, as they say in the the parlance of a pilot. A squeaker. You know what a squeaker is? Well, a squeaker is when you have you have just properly trimmed your plane and you have stalled it just right so that when the tires touch down, they make a little you know that little squeak. That's called a squeaker. That's a that's a that's a classical landing. And so Shepard is pulling her back for a squeaker. And he sees what he believes is an oil spot approaching, which is right on the center line of the runway. Now, the center line is a big white line that is painted right down the center of the runway, and it's about, oh, 18 inches wide. It's a pretty wide line. It's much wider than the center line of a road, you see. It's a big white line, see. And he sees a simple grease spot or an oil spot down there. He doesn't pay much attention. I remember I got a nose wheel on the airplane that's going to go right down that center line, providing I have... Uh, properly uh, use my ailerons and my rudders and all the other things that I'm using there, and I'm moving in real cool. And it's approaching quite rapidly at this point now, you see. My approach speed is around 80, 85 miles an hour. Uh, let's put it this way. Distances close quickly at that speed. If you can imagine approaching a brick wall at 85 miles an hour, it comes up quick. And so it's now maybe uh, 100 feet ahead of me, that little gray spot. And suddenly... 
just at the last instant, just as I'm about to touch down, I see it is not a grease spot at all. It is a gigantic turtle. Must have weighed 40 pounds. I mean, a great big one. You know, the kind that's about yay big, about the size of your average dishwasher, you know? Great big son of gun. He's looking right at me. He has walked right out on the runway, and he's waiting now for whatever action he can cause. And he can cause a hell of a lot of action when you hit a, when you hit a very large turtle, roughly, weighs, I'd say roughly maybe five bowling balls. This is a biggie. You know, that great big land turtle. Oh, he's a great big one, the kind they get down in Florida, you know. And at the last instant, Shepard just eases it back. Oh, I says, it's a turtle, a turtle. And whew, I go right over him. I must have missed him about, oh, maybe 10, 12 inches. And I just laid it down. And I got on the radio, you know, right away. And I called a tower. I said, uh, Pompano Tower? You're, oh, Pompano Tower, 73JS, yes. I said, there's a damn turtle down here on the 1-4 runway. And he's going to prank somebody in about 13 seconds. That guy behind me, you better tell him. Uh, turtle on runway, okay, over and out. No comment. I just taxied out, turned the plane around, and waited <laughs> to see what the next guy would do. Sure enough, the next guy, I see him come down, say he's right behind me in the in the pattern. I watched this uh, 172 Cessna coming in, say, and, I, and I'm sitting in my plane yet watching him, say, and I see him, he's trimming everything up nicely, and he's exactly doing what I'm doing. I'm waiting, say, and I'm waiting for the tower to contact. Apparently, he didn't have his radio on the tower frequency or something because he just came right down all at the last instant i see this plane go chuk, 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 chuk. i see it go up like that with a wild with a wild uh, almost stalling maneuver you know and he just laid it down on the other side of the turtle so i switched immediately to the tower frequency i hear uh uh 172 uh, cessna uh, 94 sierra for god's sakes why don't you tell me there's a turtle on the runway out <laughs> and then i <laughs> So you see, uh, earthworms on the uh, runway is not an unusual uh, situation unless it makes it... it when, when, a, when a DC-10 can skid sideways down the runway, that's a lot of worms. That's a lot of worms. And uh, being an old worm salesman, you know, I, I figured that's probably five, $6,000 worth of worms right there. But he, he just dealt with them. Now, you know, you know that in many runways... Uh, I don't know. Why. I'm not. I'm not doing a flying show here tonight for your benefit. I'm so, so if you're if you're bored by flying, this is not going to be a flying show. But flying is not boring. It's a lot of things, but it ain't boring. That's that. I'll, I'll concede to you. If it is boring, it is only because you are among the innocent. And uh, you know, uh, and there are many of you who are. But uh, and I'm not saying flying is dangerous either. I'm saying it's it's one thing. It ain't. It's boring. But nevertheless. You know that um, many of the notes that are given to pilots, there's a thing called NOTAMs, which are notes to airmen. And uh, these are little notes. When you look up the various airfields that uh, you are to, let's say, land on or your alternate airfields on a flight, you make little notes on your clipboard as to what you should watch out for on these various unknown airfields you're about to land on. Okay. You know that uh, that one of the most common notes in certain areas of the country, and this, by the way, is one of them, this area, is beware of deer on the runway. Deer, especially if you're coming in around twilight, and they, they tell you what you should do in case of deer on the runway, uh, you have that kind of a note, is to make a low pass over the runway before you land. In other words, you just go... <laughs> Just fly right down the runway at about uh, 100 feet, maybe 150 feet, making as much noise as you can. And any of the deer that are fooling around down there, 
you know, waiting for action. You have warned them you are on your way, and they'll take off, theoretically. Now, uh, that's, <laughs> that's another... Uh, you, know, you know, one of the most exotic of all the uh, no-tams is I do a great deal of flying up in Maine. And uh, guess what you have to watch for up there? Moose. Now, a moose is a different creature than a deer. First of all, the, the moose, he behaves differently, especially if it's a male moose at certain times of the year. So if you go roaring down the runway to scare the moose, he's liable to take that as a challenge. Ain't going to scare him at all. He just gets down and re he's ready for business. Then he, he faces into the wind. <laughs> Either that or he, sometimes when he, if, if he's a real experienced moose, he faces downwind because he knows you're going to come in against the wind, you know, and he's got maybe 12,000 pounds of antlers sticking up out there in the front. He's got a real big bumper. And uh, more than that, he's got shoulders. And do you know that, the, that many of the average moose, meese, whatever the uh, plural of that is, the, uh, many, of the, many of the average male mooses or meeses or meese, mice, moose, uh, weigh more than many light planes. Did you know that? Yes, sirree, Bob. And uh, so he, he's, he's well-equipped. He's well-equipped to deal with this, you see. Uh, and, and so he will lower his head, and as you touch down, he lowers his head, braces, and then charges. They, they claim he will charge after you've run out maybe 40 or 50 feet of your run out. And he will just let you have it. Billy be damned, right in the middle of your spinner. Now, uh, sometimes he wins, sometimes you lose. And it's a toss-up. And sometimes both of you lose. But uh, he is, his is the moral victory, uh, actually. And uh, there, <laughs> there, have been, there have been more than one case on record of a guy who has suddenly approached a moose in that way and has realized that he's not going to win, even if he wins. I mean, even if you care of the moose, he has succeeded in driving your Lycoming engine four and a half feet back of the firewall where you are sitting. <laughs> that is, let us say, a hollow victory. Uh, <laughs> it's a Pyrrhic victory of the worst sort. So uh, there, there's been some exciting moments. Uh, another one, of course, you, you must realize that this is not only... In the moose world, there are also there are also bears, uh, and some bears will go eight nine hundred pounds, and they go in packs. You see, that's the worst part of a bear. He doesn't often he doesn't often approach a Cessna one hundred and fifty singly, and so you may be landing, and uh, it says beware of garbage dump at end of runway. At twilight time, the garbage dump tends to attract maybe twenty or thirty bears. Uh, sometimes they work in concert, in unison. You know. And when 20 or 30 bears are galloping down a runway towards you, you'd better do some fast maneuvering. Very fast. And uh, <laughs> you want to hear more of this? Oh, there's a lot of this kind of stuff. I'll tell you, the world is fraught and full of hidden dangers. Hidden, uh, uh, hidden quicksand uh, is everywhere. Which reminds me, this is WOR New York. We're not what we seem to be either, friends. We'll hit you when you're least suspecting. Mutual, 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 hurt, but near and far. 
this is Reset that, because I will need that. Uh, oh, that's a terrible sound. Would you please uh, uh, give me my, uh, let's see. Oh, these are all live, right, live. How about it? I got a little spotty here for you, friends. China, China, Chinatown. La-ta-doo-doo-doo. La-ta-tee-tee. Hey, you don't have to go all the way down to Chinatown to get great Chinese food. You can make it right over here on 52nd Street and 7th Avenue. Uh, not only are they open seven days a week, and they're a kind of a Broadway New York legend. They've been there for 30 years. Uh, they're uh, also going to celebrate Thanksgiving this year. <laughs> and if you want to see the uh, the way the Chinese celebrate Thanksgiving, oh, man, barbecued capon with all the trimmings, chestnut soup, the pumpkin pie, and it really is different. All you can eat for seven and a half, and it's $5 for kids under 12, and they mean all you can eat. So you better phone in your reservations now. It's Plaza 744, I mean Plaza 744-70. Plaza 744-70, La House of Chan, Thanksgiving. Well, uh, you're going to be delighted to hear that the Mike Douglas Show is in Miami. <laughs> With Jackie Gleason as co-host, don't miss the comedy and the nostalgia tomorrow at 4.30 on Channel 2 New York. Mike Douglas. Does the thought of driving on snow-covered roads... Oh, by the way, that's another exciting moment. When you hit a, a four-and-a-half-foot snowdrift with your 150, or whatever it is you're flying, that can cause a lot of excitement. Oh, it's a, especially among the onlookers. They love that, you know, with all the, you know, the smoke and fire. That's kind of a good show. Uh, does the thought of driving on snow-covered roads give you chills? Well, no need, because uh, no, you go in snow or general pays the toll. That means your general tire dealer. He has these winter cleat snow tires, and uh, we'd suggest that you, you see Bob Moss at General Tire Service 85 East Jericho Turnpike, Huntington Station, Long Island. All right? And we have another goodie. Gramercy Park Close of 64 West 23rd Street in New York says, Have you been looking for a suit of chain mail? Would you like a genuine suit of armor that will last a long time and yet be available to the average budget? Well, uh, you go down to the factory building at 64 West 23rd Street, the third floor. Go through the big iron gate. Boom. It closes behind you. Over the drawbridge. Take your time. Try on all the suits, top coats, sport coats, and slacks in the house. Of course, that'll take you four or five months. You can just move in there for a while. And uh, there you are. You've saved yourself some money. You've saved rent. You've done a lot of stuff. And uh, you've been wearing clothes there for the last four months free. That's what Gramercy Park can do for you. Open to 7 p.m., Saturday to 4 p.m., and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. That's Gramercy Park Close, 64 West 23rd Street, 3rd floor. At 64 West 23rd Street, 3rd floor. Bum, ba dum, bum. <laughs> hey, what was that goodie you laid on me there a minute? That, that, listen, listen to this now. He's, he's getting ready in there. Is that what it sounded like it was to me? You know, speaking of other uh, no no tams, uh, there there are all kinds. There's very many exotic ones. Uh, for example, uh, in certain certain countries uh, that, that you'll find <laughs> you'll find that they'll warn you against such exotica. As for example, uh, I saw one set of no tams for a, an airfield, a strip, by the way, just a simple strip, in Peru, and it said the following. It said, it said uh, certain seasons 
unfriendly natives set up obstacles. Well, that's a kind of an exciting one to read. During certain seasons, unfriendly natives set up obstacles. Well, now, what does an obstacle consist of? Well, it consists of blowguns. It also consists of, uh, of arrows that are shot with unbelievable accuracy. <laughs> and, and, in fact, one pilot that I know uh, who was flying in Peru had a fantastic experience. Now, this is going to sound to you like fiction, but it's an absolute truth because, uh, no, it is not fiction. And uh, for those of you who are over 21 and are qualified pilots, I will I'll be glad to send you the name of the pilot. I will also be glad to tell you where you can contact him for further information if you're going to fly into this airfield. Uh, what happened to him, he was a jungle pilot, which, by the way, is a very specialized type of flying uh, due to many conditions which they meet in the jungles, which you do not meet in other parts of the world. Uh, for example, extreme heat. Uh, this uh, changes flying characteristics of airplanes. You understand that. Uh plus the fact that he, he also is very, very hip on various uh, uh, survival techniques, which you don't have to know when you're flying in Jersey. Uh, for example, uh, <laughs> you know, various, like how to, how to deal with uh, anacondas. Uh, you don't run into uh, many anacondas in Jersey. I did see one once uh, outside of the Morristown Airport in the, in the, over in the Morristown, but uh, that's unusual. He was a stray anaconda. But in, in places like uh, Peru, they run into them quite often. So uh, you're very aware of these things. Another thing that, uh, that the average jungle pilot is aware of is how to fly over long distances with absolutely no navigational aids except your compass. He also learns about things as, as how to avoid uh, sudden, cyclonic, unbelievable tornado-type storms which approach suddenly out of the sky, boom, like that, and your airplane is in 12,000 pieces. And uh, it's very hard to stay a, a, aloft under those conditions. You could try flapping your wings, like you know, your arms like hell, and that has been tried by pilots, but it doesn't often work unless you're very big and have uh, webbed fingers. Now, uh, that has been tried, too. But uh, nevertheless, uh, this, this particular pilot, he, he flew over a, a place uh, deep in the montagna, which is the uh, the outback of Peru? This is this is the untrackable Amazon wastes, millions and millions of square miles of nothing but jungle, and uh, he flew over this clearing, this little clearing where these these uh, these Indians they weren't in, they were not really Indians they're they're well they are and they aren't they're the the uh, this headhunter tribe, which has rarely been contacted by outside civilization, and he flew over this place. At about 150 feet, he was attempting to take pictures of the clearing. He, he just goes right over. So he sees all these guys looking up, and they're running around like mad, and they're diving into the weeds and you know doing all that stuff. And so he makes another. He he makes a big circle. So he's he's going to come back again. He was taking another picture, saying he'd come back in, and the, these guys had seen airplanes before, on rare occasions. What they thought they were, no one quite knows, but they, they had already prepared a defense. So he comes back, makes a big circle around, and he comes back, and he comes whistling in over the clearing again at about 100 feet, maybe 150, maybe 75, pretty low. So he just comes in. He can't believe what he sees. Down below him, there's about nine natives, and they've all, they've all gotten around this thing, see? And he, at the last instant, he sees what it is. Now... <laughs> 
<laughs> what a scene this would make out of a movie because it actually happened. I know the pilot to who it happened. He says, I couldn't believe what, what was happening to me. He sees below him. Now, remember, he's flying a light plane, a single-engine plane. Uh, it's a, uh, in case you're curious what kind it was, it was a helio courier. For those of you who know airplanes, it's a stole aircraft equipped with floats. And so he just goes, because the only place you can land in a place like that are on rivers, see. So he comes, he's going, he's got a throttle back, you see. He's going very slow because he wants to take pictures. So he goes over this, and it's a stole plane, remember, which means you can throttle it back even much greater than you can the average aircraft. A stole, you know what a stole aircraft is, short takeoff and landing aircraft, which means that he had this thing going maybe 55 miles an hour. It's quite slow for an airplane. So he just... He's chugging over this this clearing, and at the last instant, he sees below him... <laughs> he sees these these natives have whipped a, a real goodie on him. They have a tremendous bow and arrow, an enormous one that's mounted on the ground. They made a gigantic bow, and zap! They send this arrow up at him. <laughs> this big arrow goes whistling right through his wing. He, he, he's got a fabric-covered wing on this airplane, see? It just goes dunk, dunk, right up through the wing like that. He sees it go sailing right through. He says, God only knows what would have happened, see? Had they hit me a foot or so to either side, you know, it had got wires and everything else, but just it just went right, went, went, went right through a place in the wing where it just really didn't hurt anything, but it sure made a hell of a rip in the wing, you know? just went zap, zap. And he just makes a big turn. He says, I knew I'd better get out of there. <laughs> and uh, you're going you're gonna to laugh at that. But more than that, there were about 50 other natives in the weeds who let fly with conventional arrows. And, and here is Plain, when he, when he came back to his base, which was eight, maybe six, seven hundred miles away, he just made a big circle and he could go sailing back to his base. When he landed... The plane looked like, well, it looked like a porcupine with floats. It, it, <laughs> he was, it was a, he says the bottom of the plane was furry with arrows that were sticking out of the plane. You know, they, they zapped them up into there. And what was more interesting, the arrows were all tipped with curare, which means they were not uh, kidding around. They were playing for, what is curare? Well, curare is poison, if you're curious. That's you're the poison-tipped arrow, you know. You get a shot of curare in your bloodstream, and you're gonna, you, you ain't going to fly many planes for a while anyway. By the way, that's another mis, bit of misinformation. Most people have an idea that if you're hit with a, a curare dart, you are immediately dead. This is a great belief, but it's not so. A curare dart, and I have some, by the way. I, have a, uh, I was given by some natives there. I was given a blowgun, and I, I occasionally do a target practice with in case of real problems. And by the way, <laughs> that's an interesting point. You know, in New York, you have to register guns. Uh, what about blowguns? I mean, yeah, can, we, can you see me going down to the 14th Precinct Station, you know, with my blowgun, eight-foot blowgun, with all my darts, and uh, I'm registering it because it sure is a, it sure is a, a handy weapon. But uh, this, uh, the, the darts, in case you're interested, you've heard of blowguns and darts. Well, a blowgun... Is uh, is made of strips of tapered. Uh, it's a form of bamboo, but not actually the kind of bamboo you're used to. It's a form that grows in in Peru, and they have to taper this thing. It's 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 done with fire. They they uh, they temper it and fire it, and it's tapered so that 
so that the tube inside of the, the blowgun is not a simple tube, you know. It's, it, it starts large at the mouth, and by the time it gets down to the end, which is the business end of it, it's very small. It's actually tapered. And it's, a, it's not just a simple tube. It's quite a complex uh, projectile launcher. And when you... Uh, it uses very interesting uh, Newtonian laws of physics. When you blow a puff of wind into a tapered tube like that, it picks up pressure as it goes, you see, because of the tapering. So by the time it reaches the other end with a good puff of wind, it, it comes out with a real, with a real a genuine uh, pressure factor that's great. Now, the, the actual darts, are you curious about the darts? The darts are about roughly six to, to nine inches long, and they're thin slivers. Uh, very thin. They, they look like very large toothpicks. They look like long toothpicks. And they're extremely thin, and they're made of uh, tempered, heat-treated slivers of the same bamboo, which means they're extremely hard and very, very, very sharp. They're like long needles. Now, the, the other end, in other words, the, the end away from the uh, point, is, is covered. It's, they spin before they shoot it. They spin a little tiny wad of, of uh, wild cotton. There is a kind of cotton that grows along the Amazon and in various rivers there that the natives uh, pick. And they just and they carry this with them, this cotton. It's carried in a round uh, gourd-like. They, they take a, in fact, it is a gourd. They take a gourd which they dry, and they make a little hole in the top of it, this gourd. And they fill the gourd with cotton, white cotton, which... They pull out of this little hole. It's almost like a Kleenex dispenser. <laughs> and they just pull a little piece of this cotton out, and they spin it with their fingers on the end of this, this uh, it's like the wadding, on the end of this, uh, this dart, so that when they insert it in the dart, in the, in the, uh, the blowgun, then it's got a little wad, you see, on the butt end of it, so that that gives you the pressure of the, of the, of the wind, you see, your, 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 your breath. And when they blow a dart gun, is this interesting to you? I mean, how many of you ever know the actual mechanics of blowgun? When they blow it, the guy takes a big, uh, big breath, and he holds it in his in his lungs. He puffs his cheeks out, and then at the time when he's firing it, he lets it go with a boom, a real a real explosion like instead of just going like we would do. He holds it, and then when he's about to blow, he just goes boom. He lets it go. Wow, that baby goes out. And, and the blowgun is about eight feet in length. They're long. Uh, and, and so the, the, the native himself is very short. The average native is not more than, oh, four feet nine, something like that. The average uh, blowgun user the, uh, of certain tribes, like, for example, a Chaprot tribe, he's, he's about four feet nine, ten, maybe, maybe five feet. That's a, that's a big one. And uh, so when he's carrying an eight-foot blowgun, that's a lot of blowgun. And they, 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 they carry the thing, uh, they carry the thing sort of forward-like. They, they run with this thing, see? And, uh, and he, he has also, on a thong on his waist, he has this little round gourd with the, with the stuff stuck in it. And then he, he, he carries another piece of bamboo, which has got pulp in it. It's, it's the regular bamboo. It's cut off about a foot length, you see. And he carries that. It's attached to a thong. And stuck in this pulp are about a dozen of these uh, darts, maybe two dozen. They just stick out. He, he just sticks them in like a pin cushion. 
Then there's one other thing he carries with him. He carries a small container that they make. They make it out of uh, a kind of clay which is baked. It's a little container containing curare. Now, curare is a dark brown viscous liquid. It looks a little bit like very thick, uh, I would say very thick uh, molasses, dark brown. And he dips this little dart in this thing. And by the way, another thing about curare that's interesting, that once a dart is tipped with curare, it remains uh, valid, it remains active forever then. It never dries out and goes away. So you you have a set of di- uh, dipped uh, darts, and you'll notice on the end of it, as you, as you notice the dart, is there's a, it's just a slight brown discoloration that's about an inch uh, up the uh, shaft of this little uh, this little dart, and it's brown. It, it, you, it's just a little brown discoloration, but it always remains valid. So that if my darts, I have a whole set of these darts, so if I were to, to, to just prick your skin uh, and it gets in your blood, you would immediately fa- you'd re- realize how active this stuff is. Now, what it does do, really, it, doesn't, uh, it does not kill you, contrary to popular misinformation. It uh, stuns you. It, it actually uh, it, it works on the central nervous system, and it's a, I guess it works something like, uh, let's say, potent novocaine. Or uh, even more, yeah, it's a, it's a derivative of some kind of a drug. I could go into that whole thing, but uh, it's a derivative of a, of a very common drug that grows in that tropical area there. It's, uh, they, they get this drug, by the way, from plants. And uh, when, when, it, uh, when it pricks you, it just stuns you. Now, that's what it does to larger animals. So if he's out hunting and he hits, say, a, a tapir, for example, they have certain types of large rodents and so on that they hunt with these babies, it stuns them. It, uh, he gets hit with this. It's like a tranquilizer uh, shot that, uh, that the uh, game wardens today use. And so they go, pam, you know, he gets this in the, in, the, in the animal. The animal will continue to move for a, a couple of feet, and then he'll flop over. And then, of course, then they, then they give him the coup de gras uh, using other uh, and uh, very lethal instruments. <laughs> They're very good at that. Now, it will kill very small animals. It will kill, say, a bird, a small bird. It'll kill a a very small rodent, like, say, a mouse or a rat. That actually will kill them, but it will not kill larger animals. You need a very, very heavy dose of this stuff to actually cause heart arrest, but uh, that's the way it actually kills you. So nevertheless, uh, this stuff is very active. And, And when I saw one guy... Uh, one native, I went out with with this crowd. This was uh, the Chapra Indians, in case you know anything about this. this is a branch of the Hivaros, Hivaros, are uh, sometimes uh, related to the Auka Indians. But uh, this one uh, particular Indian, he was he was considered a, the top blowgun man of this this group that I was with, and so he was showing me how he uses his blowgun. And and uh, we were in, in the jungle, in the upper headwaters of the Amazon. And there was, these guys had not seen, by the way, these guys had not seen people other than themselves for over two and a half years at the time I was with them. So very interesting <laughs> experience. And they were, they were recognized working headhunters, these guys. These guys were not uh, dilettantes. They, they meant it. And, uh, well, no, they didn't. They, uh, nobody knows. You see, that's, that's one of the problems with dealing with the natives, this type of, of uh, primitive is that uh, the reason for what he does is uh, often highly uh, 
it's almost well it's obscure even to uh, anthropologists who know the who know these people very well so uh, in other words why he would take a head and why he wouldn't take a head is uh, is is a moot point there's a lot of arguments uh, even they themselves uh, are not necessarily that clear on it because they get a voice from a spirit for example that will tell them to do this and they're not very clear on why the spirit has told them often <laughs> or just exactly what language the spirit was talking in. But uh, nevertheless, uh, you, you, you find it can be very exciting spending any time with these guys because you never know what's going to happen one second to the next. But anyway, this this one particular blowgun expert, he took this blowgun. And by the way, that's another, uh, one more little, inc- uh, let's say, incidental bit of information on blowguns. That uh, the blowgun, it takes roughly uh, a year about a year to, and this is surprising to people, it takes about a year of solid work for a native to make a blowgun. That's that's how much of a work of art is. Incidentally, the blowgun is very carefully wound with a with a hemp kind of twine, uh, which which it, it's it's bound very tightly and it's it's uh, soaked with a with various uh, saps and tars, so it becomes a very hard. It's as hard as a as a lead pipe, really. It's beautifully made. And uh, they work about a year on a, on a blowgun. So if you've got an actual blowgun from one of these tribes, this is quite a thing to have. Uh, and, and one other little side thing, you know, just like we have, the, like kids walk around and they have little toy pistols and stuff, you know, like the cowboy guns and stuff like that, kids. Well, the kids of the tribe have little toy blowguns they make for them. <laughs> yeah, they make little toy ones. They're only about two or three feet long. And these kids go and they shoot little darts out. So they practice it when they're about a, maybe two years old. Now, by the way, we have a couple of other dinghies here. How about the general tire again? Let's do a general tire spot here. We got a, Let's see, where is it here? Yeah, here it is, general tire. If you're thinking of snow tires this year, you better start thinking now, man. Winter cleat tires. And remember, general's big thing. You go in snow, or general pays the toe. And boy, not many generals pay, friend. In Freeport, ask for John or Jack Miles, J&J Miles Rubber Company, 160 East Merrick Road, right? That was a snotty remark, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, bad news. Well, that's the way I am. You know, uh, uh, this has never made me loved, I'll tell you that, anywhere, in any direction. Here's an all-too-familiar sound for you trans-Hudson auto commuters. It means irritation, frustration, nervous tension. The Port Authority asks, why not join a half million of your neighbors who never have to blow their horns or their cool? They commute by rail. This way I can fall asleep. The other way I got to keep my eyes open. By bus and the express lane. Very good. It's at least a half hour safe. I like it. By path. I like paths very much. It's a very clean, very wonderful train. You can relax on public transportation. Play it cool. Take a bus or a train. A suggestion from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And by the way, that's our new name. It reflects more accurately what we've been for over half a century. An agency of the two states providing land, sea, and air transportation facilities and increasing the flow of commerce through the bi-state port area. An industry that provides jobs for one of every four persons in the New York, New Jersey metropolitan region. The Port Authority. Now, this is just a quick reminder. Don't forget it's Christmas fun time again. And you better get on the stick. Send your check or money order to the WOR Children's Christmas Fund. It's a great charity. Box 710, Times Square Station, New York. The zip, 10036. But uh, 
this guy was showing me how blowguns work, see, and, and we went out and and he's he's uh, we did anything that, that that he could show it on, see. So, sure enough, uh, there was a bird, a tropical bird, is is in this tree. Uh, wasn't a palm tree. There's a they have a, a very high type of strange looking tree that has a twisted, uh, curious whitish looking uh, trunk. A uh, strange-looking tree, and it has has leaves that hang down on it, uh, thin, rubbery leaves. It's a strange-looking tree, and and anyway, this bird is up there, about halfway up this tree, big tree. Uh, the tree was about 150 feet high, tremendous tree, maybe 100, maybe 100 feet, something like that. Remember, let, let's face it, that's a 10-story building. That's a big tree, and so he's he's pretty close to the base of this tree, and he's looking up there, and he sees this bird. See, and he says, you, you know, he, he points to the bird, and I could see it up there. And uh, the bird hopped a little bit from one branch to the next. A fairly large bird, about half the size of a pigeon, about the size of a starling. And suddenly he's sighting, see? He's sighting on him. And he's, he's sort of half crouched with this blowgun, big eight-foot blowgun. And then he goes, Poof! You didn't even see that dart go. Fantastic. I mean, it's like a bullet. You don't see a bullet go, either. You just see, Poof! And there's a pregnant pause, and you just see this bird sort of, jerk and he swings down and that bird came floating down well that bird was a good 75 feet away from us and he nailed him and that bird was moving at that point I decided to be very careful how I acted around these people <laughs> in fact a, 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 one of the guys I, I, I talked about before I went into that area there I was only there with another guy he says, one thing you got to realize, that if they decide they want you, you ain't going to get away. You just better know that. He says, you are not going to run. <laughs> he said, no way. And I can understand that, you know, no way. Oh, yeah, we got one more general tire, so let's get it out of the way here. Again, I repeat, if you have uh, winter cleat snow tires, you better get on the shtick there. Get on the move there, friends. Uh, go down to the General Tire dealer, uh, General Tire headquarters. And you remember their slogan, you go in snow or General pays the tow. In fact, they're, they're threatening to have that tattooed on my forearm. You know, this is that I never forget. And in Plainfield, ask for Pepe Vasta. Pepe Vasta at General Tire Service, 815 West Front Street. Ask for Pepe Lamoco. You know, speak. <laughs> Who was Pepe Lamoco? Don't you remember Pepe Lamoco? Well, come on. Why is it I only know these great uh, cultural things? Pepe Lamoco. Well, I'm not going to tell you. Pepe Lamoco was a very famous character. Pepe Lamoco. And, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll give you a clue. Who, pay, who played Pepe Lamoco? In fact, it made him famous. Pepe Lamoco. No, he doesn't run a general tire dealership. <laughs> no way. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, wouldn't it be kind of exciting if I if I brought my blowgun in someday? See, I pretended it would be, you know, I pretended it would be my pole vaulting pole. See, I could get by with that. Then so I walk down the street, see, get out my pole vault shoes and pretend like I'm a pole vaulter, you know, come down the street. And uh, I bring it in, I take it in the elevator, you know, and... I'd have to take it in the freight elevator. It's eight feet long, you know. I come up and I go visit the uh, sales department with my blowgun. And, <laughs> of course, it'd have to be one dill doc, you know. Our salesman say, hey, how's it work? 
I'd say, watch, I'm going to try it on Walt. See Walt sitting over there? Watch Walt carefully. <laughs> you insert the dart this way, see? You first dip it on the curare. Now, uh, you notice Walt there right between the shoulder blades. Now, watch and see what happens. Big breath. I bet that would even make the post, wouldn't it? <laughs> Showbiz personality. Nail salesman with blowgun. You see that, you know? Claims that he was only demonstrating the equipment when the unfortunate incident occurred. First time in recorded history that a blowgun victim was brought over to... to, uh... <laughs> Chelsea University Hospital. <laughs> Did you see us try to explain that at the emergency ward? He got hit by a blowgun. You know, it's all right. You know, it's only curare. It's okay. Give him a couple of hours and his, his eyeballs will stop spinning. And he'll... <laughs> I'll teach him a lesson on the 23rd floor. Though. I don't know who to mess around with and who not to mess around with. Bring it up, Lars. Will you please, Bill? I'm sorry, it was a silly program tonight, but then again, you're not often uh, anything other than that yourself, friend. You know, let's face it. Yeah, this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Big Lester Smith. He's got the news, of course. This is the news in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. Dr. Henry Kissinger could be working on another important detail for a Vietnam ceasefire. Tonight he's in Brussels, Belgium, talking with Indonesia's President Suharto on supervising a ceasefire. Indonesia is one of the four countries that have been named to have representatives on an international control commission in Vietnam. Earlier today, Dr. Kissinger and North Vietnam's top government man, Lee Duc Tho, again discussed peace terms this time for more than four hours. The talks took place at the villa outside Paris, owned by the French Communist Party. The talks will resume tomorrow. In the past 24 hours, the United States Military Command in Saigon says that B-52s have flown 13 missions over North Vietnam. That's as many as they've ever made in that period of time. Again, North Vietnam's military supply stockpiles were the reported targets for the bombers. The command acknowledged that two F-4 fighter bombers had crashed. One crashed 40 miles outside of Udorn Air Base in Thailand, cause unknown, two crewmen killed in that crash. Another F-4 slammed into the sea off the North Vietnamese coast after being hit by anti-aircraft missile from North Vietnam. That plane's crew was rescued uninjured. It is still questionable whether Canada will join Indonesia, Hungary, and Poland as the four-nation Vietnam supervisory force. Tonight, Canada's external affairs minister Mitchell Sharp said that Canada would not take part in a Vietnam ceasefire agreement unless invited to do so by all the combatants involved. As far as is known, only the United States has asked Canada to participate. New York City's maximum base rent program, the replacement for rent control, is a model of inefficiency and inadequate supervision. So says an 85-page report of the Scott Commission, the state panel investigating the efficiency of city government, in its report issued tonight, the commission said that tenants, landlords, and building employees have all been hurt. And low-income tenants in particular get passed over for rent subsidies, even though numerous studies and reports upon which MBR was based had stressed the need for some type of subsidy for low-income tenants. The commission's director, Stephen Berger, 
was asked by this reporter if the Housing and Development Authority leadership is to blame for the alleged failure of the maximum base rent program, and Berger replied, I would think so, because you've got to remember this was a program that was conceived and developed by HDA itself. Uh, the HDA sold the city council on the notion that it could implement this kind of a complex program. In fact, when we asked HDA to give us an example of an imaginative program on which it could be judged in terms of administrative failure or success, they gave us MBR. And they suggested we look at the way they're handling MBR. And quite frankly, if this is their concept of an imaginative program which is being well operated, then there's a great deal of worry we should all have about some of their other programs. More news in a moment. Does the thought of driving on snow-covered roads give you the chills? No need. Your local General Tire headquarters has the answer. A pair of General's famous winter cleat snow tires to put you on the move for only $37.90. That's for the popular size 713 tubeless black wall, plus 195 federal excise tax per tire. And if you have a bigger car, larger sizes of the winter cleat snow tire are comparably priced, General's Winter Cleat Snow Tire is always ready for action with a deep self-cleaning cleat pattern, wide, sure-footed, 78 series profile, and four husky ribs of tread. And this promise, you go in snow or general.